heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. God has made a home in the heavens for the sun. It bursts forth like a radiant bridegroom after his wedding. It rejoices like a great athlete eager to run the race. The sun rises at one end of the heavens and follows its course to the other end. Nothing can hide from its heat. The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The creeds of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. Reverence for the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The laws of the Lord are true, each one is fair. They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb. They are warning to your servant, a great reward for those who obey them. How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. Keep your servant from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. Then I will be free of guilt and innocent of great sin. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Tina. Amen. What a powerful psalm. Good morning. I'm Danny, one of the pastors here at Waypoint. Our uh, senior pastor, Lawrence, is out of town with his family. Uh, so it's a joy and a privilege to preach the Word of God and worship with you this morning. I'm going to grab my water. So last time I had my, a Duke mug, I actually work with International Student Ministry at Duke. So today I just have a clear mug so those UNC folks won't stumble. I didn't want to... You know, Paul makes it clear, don't do anything to make a brother or sister stumble. So I'm drinking out of the clear mug today, or the clear cup today. Um, so it is a joy to be with you. Uh, we're here at Waypoint. We're in a series going through the book of Psalms. So to start this off this morning, I have a question to ask. Actually, it's a bunch of questions. What drives you? What motivates you to wake up each morning and get things done? What do you do? Where do you go for wisdom? Where did you get the wisdom that told you to keep doing the things you keep doing to get things done? Or has life been so hard lately that you feel deflated and you don't want to keep going? Or has some part of the evil or the brokenness of the world that you've seen or even experienced just demotivated you from getting on and going? Or have you let yourself down? No matter where you are in life, no matter what's going on, we always stop and think and meditate and something guides our decisions. Something guided you to get up this morning and come to this building. We're always, something is guiding. We're thinking and reflecting and processing and something's getting us to do the things that we do. Or on a more superficial level, what's your go-to thing? What brings you comfort? Or what do you do when you have some free time? Or when you're bored? Or when you're procrastinating? Or when you're daydreaming or fantasizing? If you had all the time and money, what would be your go-to thing? What would you do? I know when I was a kid, I'd probably answer, get more money so I could do more things, right? I think adults would secretly answer that too. I remember the genie question people would be like when you're a kid. 
if you, you get a genie bottle and you could rub it and ask for one wish, I would say, I'd ask for as many wishes as I want. That was my, I mean, I thought of that by age six. That's how greedy my heart was and still is. Are you down on life and you can't get things done like you'd like? You, the things you want to do, you can't do. You feel like you, you're not fulfilled, you're not satisfied. Or do you feel like you're getting them done? What drives you to know what to do? Is your motivation, is our motivation, some kind of earthly fulfillment? Canadian pastor Mark Buchanan, he wrote a book called The Rest of God, which is a phenomenal book on rest, if you've, if you've never read it. Um, he says this, One of the persistent cultural myths is the myth of fulfillment. The promise that, on earth, the fullness of all that I truly need and all I really desire awaits. And it's not just a Hollywood myth. It's a Christian one, too. Maybe it's especially Christian. Is this true? Is what Pastor Mark Buchanan said true? Do we as Christians act like this? Didn't Jesus say, seek first earthly fulfillment? Right? Sermon on the Mount? No, he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The Psalms are God's gift to his people to help us answer these questions and to help us put our lives in proper perspective, to help us seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The Psalms show us that God wants us to be happy. He wants us to prosper. He wants the land to prosper, the nation to prosper. He wants the king to prosper. He wants the people to prosper. But they also show us that the world is broken and that there is evil and darkness everywhere. And while there can be joy and happiness in life, there will also be pain and suffering too. We looked at Psalm 40 last week, the famous psalm about waiting. It's like you're, you're basically getting into David's head and his cycle of emotions of trusting God, not trusting God, trusting God, not trusting God, waiting, asking, acknowledging that it's hard. The world is broken, and there's pain and suffering. We need wisdom to know how to navigate through this life. And a wise person would look to the Creator for wisdom. With hope, the person who created the world would know how to live in it. And we would look to this, this wise person would look to the Creator with hope that they would get guidance and comfort. And as people of the new covenant, saved by Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, the Psalms are still a place we must go for wisdom, guidance, and comfort. comfort. So what are the Psalms? 150 songs, hymns, and poems, and prayers, and laments, and crying out. It's the longest book of the Bible, but I know for all you Bible nerds, you're going to tell me that it's not, because actually if you count the letters, uh, Jeremiah is a little longer in Genesis, I have more letters, but Psalms has more chapters, more divisions. Um, 150 Psalms. Here's what Old Testament scholar James Hutchinson, how he sums up the Psalms. So as we're thinking about the Psalms, we're going to be studying them through the end of December. So I'm going to give a, a summary of, of the Psalms that he gives. It's pretty long, but I, I think it's really important. So he's trying to summarize the Psalms. Like you could summarize Colossians normally in like one word or two words. You could summarize Philippians in a word. You could summarize, you know, Galatians in a word. The Psalms aren't quite like that. Here's, here's what, uh, what Hutchinson says. 
Considered from one perspective, it's hard to speak of a single message of the Psalms. The Psalms exhibit a variety in terms of author, date, from Moses to the post-exilic period. They're different in genre and mood, from lament and plea to praise and thanksgiving, sometimes even in the same psalm, sometimes even in the same stanza as we looked at last week. Um, and there's also wisdom. There's perspective, individual and corporate. Who they address. Sometimes they're addressed to God, sometimes they're addressed to the community of believers. The theme, the themes like kingship, enemies, suffering, deliverance, law, covenant, salvation, history, exodus, Zion, the perfect, you know, this, this looking forward to place that they're looking forward to, this perfect kingdom. The nations are throughout the Psalms. And doctrinal domain and, and doctrinal ideas, revelation, creation, attributes of God, sin, judgment, grace. The book has often been viewed as a microcosm of the Bible and appropriate for a vehicle to enable Christians personally and collectively to express their emotions and nurture their relationship with God against the background of the range of life's experiences. If I were to put this on a website, like I have this thing that does all these things for you, people would be like, sweet, I want to buy that book, right? That would be a popular book. You could make millions if you could really get to, to dealing with these things. And we have this. And then uh, Hutchinson goes on to say, considered from another perspective, that taking account the apparent indicators of editorial shaping, the unfolding message, there is an unfolding message, and it centers on this Christ, this Messiah. The 150 Psalms were actually edited and put together strategically to help the community know how to live and know how to look forward to what God has for them now and in the future. It was pointing them to Christ. So his one sentence summary of the Psalms is this, and it's a choppy sentence. I'll put it up on the because this is, this is how he summarized it after a lifetime of studying the Psalms. Praise the Lord, which in Hebrew is hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Meditate on his circumstance-defying covenant love in the Messiah. That's how, you, that's how this one guy who studied the Psalms his whole life would sum it up. Praise the Lord, colon, meditate on his circumstance-defying covenant love in the Messiah. So we have this book of Psalms that God gave his people. Tim Keller, a, a pastor and writer in New York City who's really been influential in the last 20 so years in the U.S., calls the Psalms the songs of Jesus. They were what Jesus and the early disciples read and clung to and, and, and we can too. While the book of Psalms is its own category in the Old Testament, it's not history, it's not... Um, it's not prophecy, and it has wisdom literature in it, but it's not wisdom literature. It, like I said, it's, it's a summary. It has every topic that's in the Old Testament and in the entire Bible, it contains within itself. So it, it's, it's kind of its own category. But it is related to Old Testament wisdom literature. And the psalm, as we're doing this psalm series as Waypoint Church, one thing we're trying to do is we can't, we're not going through one psalm at a time, so you're not, this isn't going to be a three-year ser, three sermon series where we go through all 150. The psalms have categories, and the pastors here prayed about it, and we thought what we'll do is we'll present different categories. And we've actually looked at wisdom psalms already because Psalm 1, which Pastor Lawrence preached it more from the perspective of the introduction to the psalms. 
uh, is one of the wisdom psalms. It contains wisdom, similar to you'd find in Proverbs or Ecclesiastes or Job. So wisdom in the Old Testament is, is, is really important for helping the people then understand the worldview. And even as us as New Testament Christians who have the full revelation in Jesus Christ, it's still really important for us. And it, last year, I, uh, the, four, the, four, the three pastors did a series on the Old Testament, Old Testament survey. And uh, I talked to Pastor Lawrence, we're going to bring back the wisdom one just for one Sunday morning or maybe two Sunday mornings, just for those of you who didn't get it, because it'll help enrich your uh, studies of the Psalms. So look for that. It'll be coming in a couple, some, sometime in the near future. Um, so three of the most famous wisdom Psalms are Psalm 1, which we already looked at, Psalm 19, which we're looking at this morning, and Psalm 119, which is the long one. Psalm 119 contains the, a couple famous verses. Anybody know any? You know, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. Amen. I could just say that. I'm done preaching. Let's go home. His word is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. That's all we need. And it's a lamp for our feet, meaning like just enough to get us to walk a little bit. It's not a spotlight into the future. It's a lamp for our feet, like an ancient Near Eastern lamp. Psalm 119 also says, I have your word hidden on my heart so that it won't sin against you. Any of you grew up with Awana, those are kind of the two... Uh, Korowana verses. But this morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 119. C.S. Lewis says this. C.S. Lewis was a literary scholar. He, be, he was an atheist who became a Christian, and he became one of the most famous Christian apologists of last century. His, his, his writings and his, his talks have influenced millions of people and encouraged millions of believers, like me. He says this. This is a guy who studied ancient literature his whole life. I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter. Basically, he's saying this is the greatest psalm and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Old Testament scholar James May says Psalm 19 is divided into three movements. Creation's testimony to the Creator, verses 1 through 6. The incomparable value of the law or the instruction of the Lord, verses 7 through 10. And the need for, the human need for divine, divine divine forgiveness and protection. So let's look at this amazing thing that God has given us through David by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have this to cling to. Psalm 19, for the choir director. So this was meant to be sung. Um, any of you aspiring musicians out there, make this into a song. That'd be great. I know many people have, but make a new song. Let's do it. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. We're reading from New Living Translation. I work with international students. I really like the New Living Translation because it, it takes a lot of the Hebrew idioms and just puts them directly into modern English. Um, if you have, so I, I just felt like it was the best translation for this morning. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. God has made a home in the heavens for the sun. It bursts forth like a radiant bridegroom after his wedding. It rejoices like a great athlete eager to run the race. The sun rises at one end of the heavens and follows its course to the other end. Nothing can hide from its heat. So the first part, the heavens display the radiance in the splendor of God. 
And the second part compares God's splendor with the sun. Actually, most people, when they saw this, the, the people in the ancient Near East worshipped the sun. They also worshipped the heavens. Actually, almost every ancient culture did this. Um, they would have seen this. What David's doing is turning their worship of creation in the sun to say, worship the creator, the guy who can contain the sun. Um, Mark Futato, an Old Testament professor, says this. He says, not a nook or cranny in creation escapes the dazzling rays that the divine glory of the divine glory. Nothing. The divine glory reveals everything. Not a nook and cranny in creation can escape the sun. And not a nook and cranny in creation can escape the divine glory of our glorious God. We see this theme in other places in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah get, actually has this vision, he goes and meets God. It's, at the beginning it says, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord on high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And then it talks about the seraphim, and then the, this is what he says. The, the seraphim, which are these angelic beings, were saying this, they were calling it out to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. In Isaiah 40, it says, He sits enthroned above, above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. So, he's, so basically Isaiah and David are taking themes that already existed in the religious, the religious practices of the day and, and saying, you guys got it wrong. You don't worship the sun. God, God contains the sun. He br and, then he, and, and, and he also, for the Jewish person who's reading this, he's like, remember, even though you're, you're chosen by God and you're, you're God's child and we've called you, you're part of the covenant, you're like a grasshopper. So he, he puts things in perspective. If God created all of this, all that we could see, and they didn't have telescopes back then, so they couldn't even see what we can see. If God created all this, we must realize how insignificant we are in light of that. In Isaiah 2, back to the beginning of Isaiah, there's this passage about the last days. And I won't read all of it, but it talks about the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established on the highest mountain. It will be exalted above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, come, let's go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion. So the same idea that we see in Psalm 19, we see throughout Scripture. That, but this is pointing us to Jesus. This is pointing us to this one day when this Messiah will come. That it will go out. And we can actually walk in the light of the Lord. So the... So, that's where the transition is. So Psalm 19 actually covers two themes. It's like kind of a praise of creation psalm. And then it goes into what we call a Torah psalm or a law. Torah is the, the word for law or instruction in the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew word. So it, it contains both and it, it, it brings them together. Um, so this Isaiah passage talks about a coming day when the law will go out and people will walk in the light. And there will be a fair and just judge who leads all this. And when Jesus came, he said, this is me. Jesus came and he's coming again. So is everything in this Isaiah passage complete? 
is there no more war? Do people not train for war? No, but that day is coming and we know that. So I'm trying to show you how Psalm 19 starts with this creation hymn and then it moves into this idea of the law. The law, just like the sun goes out, the law goes out. Just as the sun dominates everything in sight and gives sight to everything we see, so does the word of God. Let's look at verse 7. The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. How many of you need your soul revived today? I do. I'll just tell you a little story. So, I don't know why every time I preach, I end up staying up all night. Uh, something's in our walls right next to my bed. So at first, I have this, like, this back roller thing, and we have hardwood floors, so I, we hear this rattle. So I thought it was this back roller thing was like, the floor was uneven, so I put that up. Then I thought maybe it's the vibration on my phone, because it, maybe it was like, you know how sometimes it, it, it gets plugged in and then unplugged? So then I unplug my phone. This is about three in the morning. And then Erica wakes up. She's like, do you hear that? And I was like, yeah. And then she's like, I didn't want to wake you up because I thought maybe you didn't hear it. I was like, no, I've been hearing it all night. And just to rattle all night long. And we kept trying to solve it. And finally we figured out it, it's got to be some kind of animal either. You know, I need my soul revived um, <laughs> because I'm frustrated because an animal kept me up all night. But that's a silly joke. And I don't want to make light of this passage. But all of us need something perfect. We need something that's, that's better than us, that's bigger than us, that can, that can give us, that can revive our soul. Some of you are going through things way more difficult, way more strenuous on you and, than a, a mouse or a bird being in your, your walls or your chimney. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. Reverence for the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The laws of the Lord is true. Each one is fair. They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the cone. The comb. Um, I studied history for my master's degree, Christian history and modern Christian history, particularly in theology. And... A common theme when communism kind of swept a lot of about 20, 30 countries around the world, um, they started getting rid of Bibles and imprisoning Christians. And you can hear, read, I've actually heard someone on stage speak of testimonies of them having one or two pages and they would pass them around. We can't even fathom this. We have Bibles everywhere. You might have 10 Bibles at your home. We have a Bibles on our phone. This is before the internet. Um, but there were people who, to them, the Word of God was more desirable than gold. It really was sweeter than honey. And actually, right now, many of our brothers and sisters are imprisoned because of their faith. There's more people in prison for their faith right now than at any time in history, partly because there's more people living than any time in history. I'm not sure about percentage-wise, but there are more Martyrs for the faith and more people in prison for the faith right now. And most of them, it's not like they ask the prison guard, hey, can I have my Bible? And he's like, sure. That's the reason why you're here in the first place. Here, take a Bible. No. They have to, they're recalling Scripture from memory. They're sharing it with each other. But to them, it's more desirable than gold because they trust. 
and they, they know that God's law is perfect, and they need that to revive their soul each day. They need that to bring joy to their heart. Verse 11, they are a warning to your servant, a great reward for those who obey him. Um, this week I was at the grocery store and I saw this magazine. I mean, this weekend I just saw this. It's Self Magazine. It says Mindfulness, the Science of Chill. I took a picture of it at Harris Teeter. The, the Science of Chill. Change your life with meditation. So what David is, you can take the picture down. I want to just stare at it for the next I want, you to, I want you to think about God's word, not the science of chill. Um, but what, what Davis is, David is getting at, our world is searching for too. You know, we're not here this morning reading Psalm 19. We're not the only people looking for these things, looking for wisdom, looking for what do we meditate on? We're going to meditate on something. What do we meditate on? The science of chill? I'm not making light of that. There, actually... When the world comes to some of these conclusions, there's lots of elements of truth in them. They're not the full truth. The full truth is only contained in God's Word and is revealed to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. But there's elements of truth all over. So they're probably seeking. They're right. If you calm down and relax and meditate, your life will be more peaceful than if you're stressed out all the time. But what are you going to meditate on? I would argue that that... That would be a dead-end street because they're not focusing on the Creator, the one who made everything. They're focusing within. Actually, the magazine's called Self. The deeper I look at myself, the more I realize I can't trust myself. I remember when I did youth ministry, and I would be working with 18-year-olds, and the best way I could tell them to not believe what they think right now is right is say, what advice would you give your 14-year-old self? And they'd be like, oh, I'd say, I don't believe anything you thought at 14. So then I was like, well, wouldn't your 22-year-old self tell your 18-year-old self to not believe anything you thought at 18? How can we trust ourselves? And later on in the psalm, we'll, we'll see how deceitful our hearts really are. So I'm not dogging Self Magazine, and I'm sure there's, there's some good insight into that article. I read, I read some websites that have a lot of self-help things, and they help me organize my life. And some of them are written by non-Christians. You can, you can glean wisdom from those things. But ultimately, we need the wisdom from God's Word. And I would challenge all of you to memorize Psalm 119, especially the second half. Memorize the whole thing if you're the memorizing type. Paraphrase, memorize it. That's fine. God's, God's okay with paraphrasing, memorizing. I, I know that. I I'm just kidding. I talked to him one time and asked, because I'm a paraphrase memorizer. I, I'm just one of those. I actually dropped out of pre-med because... I was like, I can't memorize all these bones of the body and all that. I'm, gonna, I'm flunking out. Um, it's okay, but have this word in your heart. This is, this is important teaching. We need to go back to this to remember this. All right, interesting shift. So there's a shift in the first six verses when it talks about the heavens and God. It uses the term Elohim, which is the generic word for God. It's also the word for gods. But it's talking about God, God in heaven. And then it shifts to Yahweh, the personal name of God. So we think about the general revelation that nature gives and then the special revelation we have in Yahweh. One Old Testament scholar points out, the sun is perfect to give us light and life. It's life-giving, and yet it's terrifying if not controlled. God's word is perfect. It gives life 
but it also exposes, tests, and purifies. The deeper we get into God's Word, the more we realize how broken and messed up we really are and the more we need a Savior. Tim Keller, same guy I quoted earlier, says, Nature tells us about God's reality and power, but nothing about His saving grace. Only the Bible can enlighten the spiritually blind, refresh the soul. Since the Hebrew word soul means one psyche or self, the Bible has the power to show and restore your true identity. Self Magazine can't do that, but the God's Word can. For the Bible to do this, to do all this, you must accept that it is perfectly true and trustworthy in all its parts. Then don't just study it, but search it and let it search you. Finally, ask Jesus, the Word made flesh, to give you in His Spirit the order to find Him in the written Word. The result will be wisdom, joy, and sweetness. We don't need to buy magazines. We have everything we need. And we have the body to work it out together. That's why I love our small groups. I love that what we study in here, you guys go during the week and, and, and talk through it. If God is your creator, not only does he have the right to give you his law, but he has the wisdom to give you his law. This is Keller again. So I was thinking about this. When my iPhone breaks, I have an iPhone and I have a Toyota minivan. So I'm going to use those as my example. This is me, not Tim Keller or the Bible. Um, when my iPhone breaks, I don't take it to Toyota. I take it to Apple. And when my minivan has problems, I don't take it to the Apple store. I take it to the Toyota dealership. I don't update the security patch on my iPhone from Toyota's website, and Apple won't change my oil. Amazon will probably start changing oil. It seems like they're, they're taking over the world and doing everything. But for right now, my illustration with Apple, they won't change my oil. Um, you take your stuff back to the Creator. Why are we so quick to not take ourselves back to the Creator? Why do we go to ourselves or to other places? When we are broken, we go to God. When we need maintenance, we go to God. To function properly as humans, we need God. True wisdom is continually recognizing our need for God and continually turning our hearts back to God. The Psalms show us this over and over again. Jesus says that we're the branches and we must, and he's the vine and the Father's the gardener. We must stay connected to him. And the vine, Jesus, is our Lord. He's the same Lord that David's talking about. I love how this psalm ends. I'm going to jump to the end. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The Lord, Yahweh. Not Elohim. The guy, when Moses said, God, how, when they asked, what's your name? He says, tell them my name is I am. That's his personal name. And Jesus says, I am. Jesus actually was crucified because he claimed to be Yahweh. They didn't crucify him because he built this great army. He actually didn't. People wanted him to build an army and he rejected them. They crucified him because he claimed to be Yahweh. And then, so we can trust the Lord. God, the Creator, came. Then he says, my rock. And if you look at Psalm 18 right before this, like I said, all the Psalms are ordered specifically. And they, they have, there is purpose in all of the, the placement of them. In Psalm 18, David talks about the going back to the rock three times. I looked up uh, some commentary. And this rock, this, I, this word has two meanings. One is a strong, unbreakable object. An object that no human tool can break. 
And the second way this term is used is a place of safety, refuge, and protection, particularly personal safety, like a cave. This isn't a fortress. There's another Hebrew word for fortress that's used in Psalm 18. This is like a place where you can personally go to be protected and have some time to stop and think. So he's our Lord. He's our rock. He's a strong, unbreakable object, and he's a place of safety, refuge, and protection. And he's our Redeemer. This is from uh, one of the Old Testament scholars. He says, Redeemer derives from family relationships where it was the responsibility of family members to buy back or redeem relatives who had fallen into slavery. And you can read Leviticus 25, 47 to 49 for a Hebrew example of this, but this was throughout the uh, Near Eastern world. The Redeemer is the one who the psalmist, in the Redeemer is where the psalmist's hope resides. He's calling him Lord. He's calling him the rock. And he, place of refuge, the place that's unbreakable, and he's calling him the one, the only one that can buy him back and purchase him and bring him back from slavery, from bondage. So in response to Psalm 19, I would say there's three types of people or three types of present reality, three types of circumstances that all, of, that are everybody in this room, everybody in the world, when you hear these words, there's three reactions, there's three circumstances, there's, there's three realities. The first one is you hear it and you say, I don't really know God's word and his instruction. I don't know Jesus. And if this is you, if you're in the audience today and you don't know Jesus, you don't know his word, you don't know his goodness, when you hear this, you're just like, I don't really understand it. Get to know the creator. Get to know Jesus. 2,000 years ago, God, the I am, the creator of everything, said, I'm going into the broken relationship just like this Redeemer, I will be the Redeemer. They're slaves, they're in bondage, they're killing themselves, they're destroying themselves. They need a Savior. There's, dark, there's spiritual darkness everywhere. They, the promise that I made, I'm going to fulfill it. God enters into human history as a, a baby in a poor village. And He came not to, to, to be served, but to serve. And he came to redeem us. So if you don't know Jesus, today is the day. Know Jesus. Don't look to Self Magazine or these other things. We're all looking to something. We're all trying to find the answer. I'm here to tell you today that Jesus is the answer. The second circumstance, when someone hears Psalm 118, they might say, I generally know God's word and his instructions, and I want to love them, but I don't love them like I know I should. So... I don't have all the answers, but here's what I would suggest. Take, mal, take small steps to reorder your life to get to know Jesus. Small steps. Don't say, tomorrow I'm going to be a preacher or something, you know. Just say, today I'm going to try to get to know Jesus. And then when you wake up tomorrow, say, I'm going to get to know Jesus more. I would suggest you could start with reading Mark, the Gospel of Mark. It's the shortest one, so you actually can finish it. Read John. John's probably the, the clearest uh, teaching of Jesus where he literally says, read this to get to know me. If the Bible's hard for you to read, like I mentioned earlier, the New Living Translation is really helpful. Uh, get a study Bible. If you don't have the money, I'll, we'll help buy you one here at the church. I promise. We need you guys to get into the Word. A study Bible shows how the Bible links together. 
get in a small group here at Waypoint. And when you're in the small group, raise your hand and just say, hey, I don't understand this. Your small group would love, all of them in the room, there was a point when they didn't understand it. So they would love to help you. It may not be in the group because they don't want to embarrass you. You might, they'll go out to lunch with you or something. And if you're in a small group and someone asks, can you help me? Take them out to lunch. Be that person to help them. But take small steps to get to know Jesus. And then ask others to pray for you and to be with you as you're taking these steps of faith. Many people in this room were where you were. And they might be back that, in that place at some point soon. So we need to help each other. The third type of person or circumstance. I love God's word and I know his instructions well. And I know they are best for me. But I keep falling short and failing. And I'm just to let you know there's no fourth circumstance. There's no I know God's word and I obey it all the time and I'm doing, I'm doing perfect. Because that was Jesus. If, you, if you're here today and tell me you're that person, we're gonna, we need to have a talk. Um, but all of us would fall into this third category. We know God's word. We know his instruction. This was David's plea. We, I mean, literally last week, he's, we, we, in Psalm 40, we see the battle in his mind. We keep falling short. So I'm going to answer the question to how we deal with this with Scripture. It says, how can I know the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. The fact that we can have hidden sins lurking in our heart and that we don't even recognize shows that we can't be saved by just the law. David himself says, I love the law, it's great. And then he says, I can't be, there's sin, hidden sins. So there's things that I don't even know I'm doing. So then David talks about keep your servant from deliberate sins so they don't control him. But going back to that first one, how can I know the sins lurking in my heart? We can't, we need grace. Everything in the Old Testament points that we need a Redeemer. We can't do it. I wrote in my notes, grace, grace, grace. How can we know the sins lurking in our heart? We can't. We need God's grace. We need God to search us. And we need the forgiveness that's found in Jesus Christ. Then we'll be free of great guilt and innocent of great sin. David didn't know about the full revelation of God's plan to send his son Jesus to live the perfect life, die on a cross, and rise again. But he knew of God's mercy towards sinners and God's grace towards sinners. 900 years before Jesus was born, in Psalm 103, David says this, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor, harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. This is 900 years before Jesus. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writing of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth that until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its perfect purpose is achieved. Going back to the Old Testament in Jeremiah 31, 33 and 34. After God acknowledges that the people were unfaithful and they broke the covenant God made with them through Moses, he speaks of a new covenant. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. 
I will be their God and they will be my people. And this is also quoted in Hebrews 8. This is who we are. God writes it on our hearts through Jesus. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. This is accomplished through Jesus Christ, the new covenant. In Luke 22, 20, we're going to actually take the Lord's Supper today. When Jesus is with them, he knows he's going to his death. He says this, In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. He's referring to the new covenant that was promised to Jeremiah and the other prophets. And here's the beautiful, I love this. If you want to know how the law relates to us, Galatians is a good place to start. How it relates to us as Christians. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, to redeem, same word, those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. And the reason why it uses the word sonship here is because the firstborn son gets the privilege. So that's, that's why uh, it doesn't, it says child later. It's not meaning that women aren't part of this. It's saying that the, it's using the, the terms of the day. The firstborn son gets the inheritance. They're redeemed. David cries out to this Redeemer, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. How are we redeemed? He redeems us through, that we might receive adoption to sonship because you are his sons. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. Going back to the Jeremiah passage, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you an heir. This was accomplished through the death through the perfect life, the death, and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, how can we begin to follow God and live our lives for Jesus? Because he's redeemed us. I can't follow the law. There's, too many, there's sins lurking in my heart that I don't even know about. But I can move in that direction each day by trusting Jesus. Thank you, Father, that through Jesus, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart can be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So we didn't have a congregational prayer this morning before the service. We normally pray together as a congregation because I wanted to give us time at the end before we take communion. And I just want you to pray, just to ask God, when, Jesus, when Paul gives instructions about the Lord's Supper, he says to, to examine your heart. And this is a time to examine our hearts. And just, just thank God for redeeming us. Just confess, just literally breathe out the junk and breathe in his word and his spirit. Just take a few moments in silence. The room will be silent to confess.